this morning, would you grab a Bible and open your Bible up to the book of Joshua? We're continuing on in this book, and we're going to look at chapter 3 and chapter 4 this morning. We can trust that our God is going to feed us this morning in his words. We see the desire of our Lord, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, is to feed us with his very words. And so, let's go to Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4, trusting that God will feed us. So starting in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate your sounds, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant... When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and with the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan... And the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. And Joshua called 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you 
When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? And you shall say, and you should tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we say what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, our, our souls cling to the dust and we pray, give us life according to your word. We know that these are your words. And we pray this morning that you would cause us to live as we hear them read and as we hear them preached. Would you fasten these words to our hearts that we might put to death the sin of forgetfulness and that we might live before you in the fear of the Lord. Would you do this great thing for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year in my spare time, I seem to get drawn into a different topic, a different fascination. So a few years ago, I, I stumbled into reading biographies about presidents of the United States. And so I, I stayed there working through these big books on these presidents. Last year, I got into this fascination about reading uh, about Civil War generals and reading about all of these battles. And this year, I've stumbled into a new theme, and that is the theme of explorers and adventurers. 
And what I find interesting reading about these specific themes and getting stuck on them for a while, like presidents or civil war generals or explorers, is that while you get stuck on these themes, you start to notice things. You begin to notice patterns and similarities in the lives of these men that you're studying and reading about. And so I've been reading about the last month or so about explorers, and what I've noticed is this. The greatest threat to the lives of these men, and you have to know about these men, these were, were brave men, some of the bravest men who ever lived. They, they sailed around the world when no one else had sailed around the world. They, they went to Antarctica just for the sake of saying, I've walked over the whole continent. These were men who descended into the forest of the Amazon without a map and made maps. Now, the greatest threat to the lives of these men, these brave men, was something rather mundane and something rather boring. It was a disease. It was called scurvy. So most of these men who died on these great adventures did not die because of storms or waves or wild animals or hostile natives. Rather, most of the men who set out on these great trips died because they lacked vitamin C. And because they lacked this basic vitamin, all sorts of terrible things would happen to them. It would start with their gums. Their gums would begin to bleed, and after a while, their teeth would begin to fall out. And then soon, the hair on their body would start to fall out, out of their beards and off their heads. And then these men would describe their bodies, and they would describe it as if their bodies were dissolving from the inside, like their joints were becoming unglued. And then slowly, these men would, would die. It was a terrible way to go. And so the greatest problem of the explorer in centuries past was scurvy. A simple lack of vitamin C did them in time and time again. And this just boggles our mind as we sit here this morning. Literally thousands of brave men died because they didn't have enough fresh fruits and vegetables. Now I want to relate this to the story of Israel we are studying. And so we know, as we've worked through the first two chapters of the book of Joshua, that Israel has some daunting obstacles that are set out in front of them. There are these walled cities. There's Jericho in front of them. There are better trained, better equipped armies in front of them. There are these giants that hate God and hate them in front of them. And those are nothing to shrug at. Those are big obstacles. Those are massive violent threats to Israel. But hear this, the greatest threat to Israel is not those walled cities, it's not those better trained, better equipped armies, it's not the race of God-hating giants standing in front of them, rather the greatest threat to Israel's well-being and success is rather something mundane, something rather mundane. In fact, it's something we're all acquainted with in our own lives. The great threat to Israel is forgetfulness. And this matter is what routinely trips up the people of God again and again and again, the sin of forgetting. Just think with me for a moment about Israel's greatest catastrophes. To start with, we can remember Israel's great sin at the Red Sea. So right in the middle of this great work of salvation, literally right in the middle of it, the Lord has put his plagues on on, on Egypt and Israel has moved out of the land a bit. The Red Sea is before them and then Pharaoh's turned his mind around and he's coming after them and they're in this spot 
right in the middle of this work of salvation, what does Israel do? They sin against the Lord and they complain against him. Exodus chapter 14, verse 12. They say this to the Lord, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They sinned right when God was saving them. Or or another example. So Israel crosses the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, and in the wilderness they get hungry. Their bellies are aching for food. And so they're hangry, and what do they do? They they start to mumble and they grumble and they complain against the Lord. We get this in Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. They say this, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Or yet another example, we keep following their story and they go to Horeb and we see this terrible scene. Here's the entire nation of Israel and they're worshiping an ox. It's wicked. It's terrible. And there's so many other catastrophes to remember. There's Israel's failure to enter the land in the book of Numbers. And then there's Numbers chapter 25, which we talked about last week. And then interspersed in there, in the book of Exodus, and the book of Numbers, there's all these mutinies that take place. Israel's trying to purge Moses from their midst because they are sick of his leadership and what he represents of the Lord to them. So here are all of Israel's failures. Book of Exodus, the book of Numbers. And as we take stock of all of this, we have to ask, well, how could this have happened to Israel? What is the root cause of all this? What is giving birth to all of this sin and destruction? Well, the answer, I think, is this. It's forgetfulness. And you don't have to take my word for it. For when we open up our Bibles, God himself diagnoses Israel and shows us the root cause. And we find God's diagnosis of Israel in Psalm 106. We, we used it in a responsive reading this morning. And in this psalm, the Lord is recounting Israel's history. And as the Lord recounts Israel's history and lifts up the catastrophes of Israel, we find this theme of forgetfulness. Just listen. Verse 7 of Psalm 106. It says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. There's the problem. Or you look at verse 13 of Psalm 106. The psalmist says, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. And the most damning verses come in verse 21, verse 22 of Psalm 106. The psalmist says this, they forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Psalm 106 is opening up the heart of Israel so that we can see inside of it. And the theme is this, forgetfulness. Why all of these great catastrophes? The psalmist says, they forgot God, their savior. And so we see this sad truth on display in Israel's history. And the sad truth yet applies today. So so hear this, believe this, the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous peril you face in this present life is this matter of forgetfulness. The great danger of the Christian life is not some boogeyman hidden around the corner that your imagination fills in. No. 
great danger of your life is this scurvy-like disease called forgetfulness. And so hear this. If your knowledge of God and his many wondrous works grows hazy and distant, if your knowledge of God grows unfamiliar and foggy, your life will become a disaster just like Israel's. That will happen to you. Now, if we're listening to this and we're heeding this warning, if our heads are on straight, we, we ask a question in light of this, and the question is this, how can I be saved from this disease? How can I be saved from forgetfulness? And the good news is Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4 gives to us a remedy for forgetfulness. And to get this remedy that God has for us, we're going to need to work through the text, and we're going to work through it with three different headings. So the headings are these. What God does, that's the first heading. The second heading, what it means. And the third heading is this, what Israel must do. So let's start with the first heading, what God does. So Israel's need at the beginning of Joshua chapter 3 is not a need that is hard to discern. To take the land, they will need to do this. They need to cross the Jordan River. The Jordan is separating them from the land of promise. And the text lets us know as we begin chapter 3 that this Jordan River is a significant issue. The text tells us that it is spring. And because it is spring, we get verse 5. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. Now, we need to use our imaginations here to, to, to think about this. So, pretend, picture in your mind that you are standing at the edge of the Jordan Valley. So, you're up on the bank, and you're, you're looking down across the valley, and it is all flooded with water. Now, this valley might have been 200 yards wide, or it could have been up to a mile wide. And so, before you, there could be a mile valley flooded with water. And the river itself, so its channel where it normally flows, would have been up to 12 feet deep. And the water in that part of the river would have been moving fast because it is spring and all the snow is melted in the mountains and it's rushing down. Even worse, and this is something we usually don't think about, underneath all of that flooded water, so it could be a mile wide, was a tangled jungle of a forest flooded, and Israel would have to maneuver through that flooded, tangled jungle. And as you think about it, you're picturing this in your mind, you're standing there, you're looking out, how in the world are you going to move a great and vast people through this big mess? Literally impossible. So what does the Lord do? Well, we get some very precise instructions and descriptions in the text. In verse 5 of chapter 3, the the people of God are, are summoned to consecrate themselves, And that means that they would have to wash themselves and their clothes. It means that they would have abstained from sexual relations. It means that they would probably have to confess their sins to the Lord. Then in verses 3 and 4, we learn that the ark of the Lord will, will go before the people. So the Lord is going to lead them into the Jordan and through the Jordan. And a gap of about a kilometer is to separate the people of God from the ark of the Lord. And then in verse 8, we see that the men who carry the ark are to carry the ark into the edge of the Jordan, and there they are to take their stand. And so we're given these instructions and descriptions, and then they all take place. 
And so the men, they take the ark, they bring it down to the edge of the Jordan, they take their stand, and then we hear this in verse 15 and verse 16 of chapter 3. As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a, a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of, of Arabah, the, the salt sea, were cut off. So what is the, the result of this great miracle? The Lord stops up the river. Well, the result is this. The people are able to cross through the Jordan on dry ground. So we ask, well, what has God done here? What are we seeing Well, we see this. God has worked yet another exodus for the people of Israel. The first exodus, God split the waters of the Red Sea. And in that exodus, Israel left behind the land of slavery and Pharaoh and entered into the service of God as a nation. And here, a second exodus happens. God splits the waters of the Jordan. They walk through on dry ground. And this time, Israel leaves the wandering of the wilderness and this life of sin and enters into the land of promise that God has given them. And so that's the first heading, what God does. He stops up, he stops up the river and Israel passes through. So we can move to the second heading. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean? So the data of God's actions, it's before us. He stopped the river and Israel has passed through and we're asking as readers, well, what are we supposed to make of this great deed? And we know as students of the Bible that our God does nothing randomly or haphazardly. Our God is wise and so he does things deliberately And so this is a wise question asked. Well, what is the purpose of the Lord here? Why is he acting like this? And from the get-go, we must recognize that God could have done things very differently. Just think about it. God could have delayed Israel in the wilderness another two or three months. And if you'd have delayed Israel in the wilderness another two or three months, what would have happened? It would have been summer or late summer and the floodwaters would have died down and they probably could have just forded the river and have gone through. Or think about it, the Lord could have used a different route to get into the land of Israel. If, if the geography is in front of you, there are many different ways to get into the land of Israel. You don't have to cross the Jordan. He could have used a different route. He could have bypassed the Jordan and then no miracle would have been needed. But we see in our text as we're reading it, God does otherwise. God so arranges Israel's journey. God so arranges the floodwaters so that a miracle is absolutely necessary. And as we read our text, we see three reasons why God did this. The first reason is this. It was necessary for Joshua. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. It reads this, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So what is going on in this miracle? One thing that's going on, one purpose is this, that that Joshua would be exalted in the sight of Israel. The Lord wants to confirm Joshua's leadership over this people. So what we see here might be the greatest ordination ceremony for a leader ever in the history of God's people. 
Here the Lord shows up and to ordain Joshua in the office of leadership, he stops up the Jordan and he is confirming, he's preaching to his people, here is the man who is going to lead you. Do not rebel against him. And the result of this miracle we hear in chapter 4, verse 14 is this. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. So that's the first purpose of the Lord. He's going to exalt Joshua. Second purpose of the Lord is this. It was necessary for Israel. Look at chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. The text says this, And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and all the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. So what does this miracle do? Well, it confirms and it establishes the promise of God. And there is a logic at work in this miracle. It goes something like this. Just as the Lord can stop up the river of Jordan, just as he can stop the floodwaters, just as he can dry out this wet ground so that Israel can pass through, so too he will cause Israel to inherit all of the land of Israel. What is the Lord doing? He's going after their doubts, their fears and anxieties, and the Lord is preaching this truth in this miracle. I am supreme over the waters of the flood. I am the God who is with you, and I'm wielding my mighty power for you. Believe in the promise. Trust in me. This is what God wants Israel to see. He wants them to see his mighty power. And so this truth is repeated throughout the scriptures if if you're listening. We hear it in Psalm 29, verse 10. The Lord wants his people to see this. The psalm says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The same truth is repeated in Psalm 93, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunder of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. That's the truth that God wants his people to see. I am almighty. Trust me. Believe me. And we find a third reason for this miracle. It is necessary for all the nations of the earth. Look at chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. Joshua says to the people, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. Why? Well, Joshua answers, he says, So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What is the Lord aiming at in this miracle? He's aiming at Joshua. He's aiming at the people of Israel. And his eyes are going broader and bigger. He's aiming at all the nations of the earth. This miracle is for the global renown of the Lord. The Lord acts like this and works like this so that the strength of his hand would be made known to all the nations of the earth. And our God could have done things so differently here. He could have done them quietly and discreetly. 
But he didn't, and he didn't for the fame of his name, so that the strength of his hand would be known to all men over all the earth. And so that's our second heading. As we think about the first two headings, what have we seen? Well, we've seen the work of God. What has he done? Well, he has stopped up the Jordan River and Israel is able to pass over. And and what does that mean? Well, really, it's a sign pointing to the power of God, lifting up the majesty of God before Israel and before the nations of the earth. And this brings us to our third heading, what Israel must do. And we can turn that heading into a question. Well, how is Israel to respond to what God has done? And the answer is this, Israel must remember the Lord. And we see God's desire for remembrance put on display in chapters three and four. Almost more information, this is so interesting as you read these chapters, almost more information is given about the the stones and the procedure of the stones than the crossing of the Jordan itself. As we get these explicit instructions to Israel and they're repeated over and over again, one man from every tribe, so 12 men, are to go into the river and they're to take 12 stones and they're to put them on their shoulders and they're to bring them out of the river. And then they're to set them up as a memorial of what the Lord has done for Israel. And the text teaches us about what these rocks are supposed to do. Chapter 4, verses 20 through 23. Text is explaining their function. It says, And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry ground. Do you see what God desires for his people? Do you see what God wants here? God wants his people to remember. Every time they walk by these rocks, what does God want? He wants the conversation to go in a definitive direction. He wants fathers to speak to their children saying things like this. Children, do you know this? Yahweh, he is the great wonder-working God. Children, do you know this? Yahweh, he is our savior and our deliverer. There is no one like him. Children, do you know this? Yahweh, his hand is exalted. It is mighty in power. No one can stop him. Children, do you know this? Let me tell you the story about the Jordan River when it was flooded in the springtime and he brought us through these waters. Let me tell you all that Yahweh has done for us. What does God want for these people? As they walk by these rocks, as they see these rocks, what does the Lord want? He wants them to bind the knowledge of God to their souls so that they would not forget the Lord and all that he has done for them. The Lord wants this knowledge cemented in their brains that they would never forget the Lord. And here we see the enemy that the Lord is battling against. He is battling against forgetfulness, the forgetfulness of Israel. The Lord so hates forgetfulness that he makes Israel go back into the Jordan, grab these stones, carry them out, set them up in Gilgal so that they might walk by these stones again and again and remember what the Lord has done for them. The Lord does not want his people to forget. He does not want them to turn away. And so that's our third heading. What Israel must do, they must 
remember. So we've worked through these two chapters with these three headings. We've seen what the Lord has, has done for Israel. He's, he stopped up the Jordan, Israel crossed through. We've seen what it means. The Lord has exalted Joshua with this great deed. The Lord has, has revealed his mighty power to Israel, and not just to Israel, but to all the nations of the earth. And I want to go back to the question I asked earlier as we began this morning. How can I be saved from forgetfulness? I told you at the beginning of the sermon that the greatest threat to your Christian life is forgetfulness. So how can we be saved from forgetfulness? Well, Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4 provide a clear answer for us. If we want to be saved from forgetfulness and all of the disaster and catastrophe that accompanies forgetfulness, we must remember. We must be a people who remember the Lord And if we are to remember the Lord and all that the Lord has done for us, we then need the signs of God. See how the Lord works in Joshua chapter 3 and 4. He he gives them a sign so that they could remember. Even more, we must make careful and diligent use of the signs that God has given us so that we might remember him and so fear him all of our days. So we go back to the text and we're thinking this through. We see that Israel had 12 stones from the Jordan. That was God's sign for them, pointing them up towards him. And so these stones, every time they saw them, were, were meant to lead them to God. And as we think here this morning as Christians, we can reason that we have something better than Israel. Just think, those stones, they were not very portable. They got set up in Gilgal, and that's where they stayed. They didn't move around Israel. Nor were these stones universal. If you lived, for example, in the far north of Israel, or if you lived in the far south of Israel, guess what? You probably didn't see those stones very often in your life. They weren't in your neighborhood, and so you didn't see them. But hear this, God has given us better signs. And what are those better signs that God has given us? He has given us baptism and the Lord's Supper. These signs are better because they are portable. Just think about it. We can take them with us. They are are universal. They're not bound up in Gilgal. And more importantly, they are all the more powerful because they are connected to the realities of the new covenant and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What I think Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4 does is I think they give us a fresh understanding of the signs that God has given us, and they press upon us our Christian duty. So I want to speak for a moment about the fresh understanding that we get from these two chapters in the book of Joshua. So let me ask you a question. It should be an easy question to answer. What was the job of the 12 stones in Gilgal? What was their job? Was it their job to remind Israel of their great work? As readers, we say no. Israel really didn't do anything great. Was it their job to remind Israel of their faithfulness to the Lord? And we say definitely not. They have not been very faithful to the Lord. And so what's the job of these 12 stones in Gilgal? Well, their job is to point directly to the Lord. They point out who God is and what he has done. 
And here we get a clear understanding of the signs of the new covenant. This is what baptism, this is what the Lord's Supper, this is what they do. They point up, they point out, they point away from ourselves, they point away from you, and they point toward God, revealing who he is and what he has done for us. We can just tease this out. Think about baptism for a moment. What does baptism point to? What is baptism all about? Well, as we think about Joshua 3 and 4, baptism is all about Jesus. Think about it. Jesus was the one who was baptized. Better said, he was the one drowned under the judgment waters of the Lord. Even more, Jesus is the one who who rose from the dead, and that is the truth that baptism proclaims. It, It proclaims his conquering of death. Even more, baptism proclaims his justification and his glorious title as the Son of God in power. What does baptism do? It points up and away from ourselves. It points to Jesus and what Jesus has done. Or think about the Lord's Supper. What's the Lord's Supper all about? Well, the Lord's Supper, too, points to Jesus. Specifically, it points to his his broken body and his shed blood. It it points to his identity. He is our Passover lamb. It points to his substitutionary death for sinners. It proclaims this great truth, which we hear in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is the message of the Lord's Supper. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so these new covenant signs preach a simple message. The water, the cup, the bread, they all proclaim every time we we use them, Jesus is your savior. That's what God is preaching in these things. Jesus is your savior. And as we connect Joshua 3 and 4 to these new covenant signs, don't we see something great of God? We're seeing his kindness on display. What does our God want to do for us? He wants us to remember Jesus. And we should remember that every time we participate in these new covenant signs and baptism in the Lord's Supper, we should remember this. Jesus, he is my perfect and all-sufficient Savior. That's why God has given me these signs. Think about it. This is what God does all of the time. What's God doing right now in the preaching of his word? He's reminding us of this important truth. Jesus is your all-sufficient savior. He's preaching that into our ears so we wouldn't forget. Think about baptism. He submerges us in the truth that Jesus is our savior, drowning us in the truth and bringing us back out. That happens at the beginning of the Christian life. And, And think about the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord doing? He's putting into our mouth again and again the cup, the bread, this truth. Jesus is your all-sufficient Savior. So these two chapters, they, they help us see. They help us see what God is doing, even in our own midst. God is causing us to remember Jesus. So I've, I've talked a little bit about what these chapters do. They help us understand these signs. And now I want to talk about our Christian duty. And so God is gracious. He's given us signs. He doesn't want us to forget. But we still have to do something. And what do we need to do? We need to, to make diligent use of the signs that God has given to us. And we can ask, well, what does it look like to make diligent use of the signs that God has given us? Well, to begin with, it means that we must not misuse the signs that God has given us. 
So how can we misuse the signs that God has given us? Well, this happens often through neglect, negligence. One of the most common ways this happens in the Christian life is that you just don't show up to church. You miss the Lord's Day. You don't participate in the Lord's Day. You don't consecrate the Lord's Day. And because you don't do that, you don't show up. What happens? You, you miss the Lord's Supper often. You don't participate in those elements that God has, has given us. And so I urge you today, I urge you today, one should diligently strive to never miss a Lord's Day meal. That should be a mark of the Christian life. You should, you should settle this in your mind. I will do whatever it takes to participate in every Lord's Day supper, to not miss it. We can ask, well, why? Well, think about it like this. Every missed sign is a great loss to your soul. Or to put it another way, every missed sign puts your soul in danger. You can't afford to miss the Lord's Supper. You just can't afford to do it. And we should reckon that in our hearts. And there is yet another way we can misuse these signs that God gives us. And this happens through flippancy or irreverence. And so we come to church, we're, we're present, and we, we take up the signs that God has given us, but we don't remember, we don't believe, we don't set our minds on Jesus. What happens? The signs are in our hands, and our minds wander here and there and everywhere in between. They're going everywhere, but, but it's not going to Jesus. And this is how we often misuse these symbols, these signs. And we need to remember that these signs of the new covenant are weighty and should always be received with our eyes wide open. We should be grasping these signs with faith, trusting that the Lord is nourishing our faith, lifting us up. So we can misuse them, but we can say something positive because we need to do something very important. When we get the signs that God gives us, what do we need to do? We must go where they point. If these signs point to Jesus, when we make use of these signs, we must go to Jesus. Our great work, whether in baptism or, or watching a baptism, whether eating the Lord's Supper, is this, to set our minds on Jesus. Your work, Christian, is to cut through the fog of forgetfulness in your life and recall all that the Savior has done for you. To remind yourself of his life and his death and his resurrection, his ascension and his second coming. Even more, your work is to do this. It is to believe, once again, the truth of the gospel, to believe this simple message, Jesus is your perfect and all-sufficient Savior. But that's why God gives us these signs, that we might yet believe in Jesus. So if we want to use these signs, we need to go to Jesus when we're using the signs. So I want to end with this call. So here's the call of Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4. Brother and sister in Jesus, with care and with diligence, with faith and even gladness, receive the better signs of God. We don't have stones, praise God. We have water, we have bread, we have a cup. And I urge you today, I command you in Jesus' name, use them to remember Jesus Christ, your Savior. Put them to work in your life. Use them to put to death that terrible disease of forgetfulness. Use them to go to Jesus. In fact, use them just as Joshua commanded Israel. And we'll end with this. Joshua 4, verse 21 and following. Joshua looks to the people, and he's preaching to them. And he's preaching to us. And he says this. When your children ask their fathers 
in times to come, what do these stones mean? And you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry grounds. We can say something so much better to our children, can't we? When our children ask, what are we doing with that water? What are we doing with that cup and that bread? We can say God has delivered us from death unto life through Jesus, his son. Joshua goes on and he says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's fear God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're so thankful for the wisdom of your word. We need your wisdom. And we do confess our great issue is forgetfulness. And so we pray now that through the preaching of your word and in the weeks to come as we celebrate the signs that you give us, that we would remember. Oh, Father, we want to be a people who remember that we might fear you all our days. And so we pray and we plead. Would you cast down the sin of forgetfulness Would you blow away the fog of forgetfulness? And would you give us faith in Jesus? We pray this in his name. Amen.